following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Call God Father, and oftentimes when we pray, we say that uh, we we've we've heard this before. It's not new. You know, I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't know. But what really does it mean to be uh, a child of God? What does it mean that we call God our Father? And when we think about this question, there's really two. Uh, there's probably more, but there's at least two problems that confront us when we think about this issue or this matter of God being Father. And the first one has to do with our own growing up experience. Uh, the truth is, uh, we all have fathers, right? Nobody here was hatched. Uh, as far as I know, you all look pretty normal, most of you. Uh, I think you were all born and you have a father. Now, you may not have known your father, but you have one, right? Most of us know our fathers, which may be even more of a problem, right? Because the reality is, human fathers are flawed, right? I'm a father. I am not a perfect father. We as parents make mistakes, and we don't always represent the, um, the picture of a father very well. And so oftentimes we, we come into this question of, of who God is as a father, and we bring with it our bad experiences from our childhood. Uh, this is very much true in my own, my own Christian experience. When I was a kid, uh, I, I, I wanted desperately as a child to please my, my dad, my earthly dad, I just, I mean, I lived to make him happy. And I was desperate to do anything I could to get his words of approval and affirmation. But I could never do it, right? I, it just was an impossibility to me. I could never, ever make my dad happy. I could never do it right enough that he said, man, that was a good job, son. Never heard those words. And kind of the typical scenario for me, the way it worked, my dad was a builder and carpenter and fixer. And uh, so I'd be out with my dad helping him fix stuff, right? And he'd say, you know, he'd need a tool. He'd say, Dad, go get a schnorkenblaffer, you know. There's no such thing as a schnorkenblaffer, just so you know. But in my brain, you know, he could have said anything. It was foreign language to me, right? And I didn't know what a schnorkenblaffer was. I had no idea, right? But I was in a dilemma because if I admitted that I didn't know what a schnorkenblaffer was, he would say, he would yell at me for being stupid and not knowing this. How could I be his son and not know what a snorkenbluffer was, right? So you don't ask, right? You don't ask. So what you do is you run into the garage, right, where all the tools are, and you start looking at every individual tool thinking, if I were a snorkenbluffer, what would I look like, right? And you try to kind of match up the name with the tool, right? And uh, if it had the word claw in it, but that was a good one, you know. Or if it had the word wrench in it, that kind of narrowed it down, that it wasn't some kind of hammer. And so I would go through this very scientific approach to uh, solving this riddle. And I'd finally get the tool that I thought fit whatever the name was, and I'd run with it back out to my dad. And every time, you know, every time, well, that's not it. And he would always say these words, these words, I still, they just ring in my ears. He would say, if you want anything done right, you just got to do it yourself. And he would store them off into the garage and grab the snorker bluffer or whatever it was, right? And I would just feel crushed, right? Because I wanted to please him. Could never do it. Well, when I got saved and uh, I discovered that God was my father, guess how I picture God? As this, uh, this, this God who's just like my dad, who could 
who would never be pleased, right? who I could never get it right with God. There would always be something wrong. He'd always find some flaw, and God was always saying, oh, God, if you want anything done right, you've got to do it yourself. Right? And that was, my, that was my picture of God. I brought that into my concept or understanding of God. So that's one issue for us. And we all have varying degrees of positive or negative relationships with our dads or parents. But I know from my years of counseling that most of what counseling is is helping people get over their parents. It's mostly what counseling is, right? And the good news is that you guys are producing a new generation of counselees in the future <laughs> as they have to get over us, right? And so, so that's one problem when we look at this whole issue of God as Father is... Um, what father means to us is oftentimes quite twisted, distorted, and messed up. But there's another issue in, in, in it, and that is that, um, that I don't think most of us really uh, get or appreciate the core nature of God as father. Right? I don't think we really appreciate what it really means for God to be a father. Uh, we, we often, at least in my thinking, I think it's kind of a, it's just a, a nifty little gadget or tool or metaphor that God chose to, to picture himself. Um, but that it's really not essential to who he is as God, to his being. Right? So we think, ah, Father, not Father, whatever. God's God. I don't know about the Father thing, but it's not that important because it's not really, he doesn't really capture the nature or core of what God is in his being. Um, which is also a problem uh, if we're to understand what it means to be in relationship with God as Father. Okay, we've got to understand what being Father has to do with His whole nature, being, and character. So we're going to look at that real quick this morning. Uh, and I want to start with the second item first. Uh, what does it mean for God to be a Father? Uh, where did this come from? When did it begin? When did it start? And, and what is it about? Uh, so, so let's look at it as the nature of God, who God is. And uh, real quickly, we'll go through this real brief because it's easy. Uh, God and his nature and his being could be described in three ways. First of all, in his perf- is the perfection of his attributes, right? All the things that make up what God is, what God is like, right? So you guys are all bright, theologically trained, smart people. What, what, is, what are some of God's attributes, Mercy, merciful. Uh, you got to say it loud because I'm mostly deaf. Holy. Holy. Jealous. Jealous. Omnipotent. Love. Love. Right? Okay, those are, all, those are all attributes, characters, qualities of God, right? Um, probably one of the most succinct descriptions of his character comes uh, when when God revealed himself to Moses, and it's repeated in Psalm 103 where it says this, God revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. And he said, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us or remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. Great picture of the attributes of God. What he is like. Uh, 
second area where we could look at it, we could talk about, and we could go on about his attributes, don't have time. Second thing, we can look at his infinite and unchanging nature. Okay, his characters or attributes are what he is, but uh, he is infinite and unchanging in those things. So not only is God holy, loving, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, all that stuff, but he is, he is that eternally. In other words, God from infinity past to infinity future is all those things in perfection, absolutely unchanging and unmoving. So there was never a time when God was anything other than completely what he is today. Okay, God didn't somehow grow or develop into something he is now. right? Because to do that would mean that there was a time when he was not perfect in his attributes. He was not fully God. right? And that would be a problem because for God to be God, he has to be infinitely God. Forever past, forever future. So everything that God is... He has always been unchanging, undiminished, right? Uh, uh, so, so, for example, when we think about Old versus New Testament, a lot of times have this picture of God that in the Old Testament, God was really an angry God, and the God of the New Testament is a loving God. Okay, well, that's heresy, because that's saying that somehow God changed, right? That God, uh, towards the end of the Old Testament... Uh, realized he had an anger management problem and went to some anger management classes and kind of got himself together. And so he comes out in the New Testament a new person, right? He's got his anger under control. No, that is not what God is. God is unchanging in his nature, right? He's just as angry. If he was angry in the Old Testament, he's just as angry now. If he's loving now, he was just as loving then. He's unchanging in his nature. Everything that he always has been is exactly what he is now and will always be. Okay, third thing, third area. Uh, we can think about God uh, in terms of his triune being. Uh, and of course, this is one of the more difficult ones. It's, it's easy to picture his, his attributes. It is, it's a little more of a stretch to imagine his infinity, uh, but, but we get that. He doesn't change. His trinity is a bit more complicated for us because this whole concept of one being and three persons kind of blows circuits in the brain, right? Uh, how can he be one being and yet exist in three distinct persons? But let me think about it this way. Uh, if, if, if you were to ask the question, what is the context in which God's attributes dwell? Right? What, what is the context? What is the situation in which his love and holiness and imperfections operate. Now, in the, in the world now, uh, that's quite easy to see. You know, in our world, where God is creator, where he's made the universe and he's made people and he's made everything, we see God being good and sustaining what he's created, sending rain on the, on the good and the bad, on providing food for every living thing. Uh, every day he brings the sun up, right? And so we see in the context of creation, God's love and goodness and kindness displayed in many, many ways. Uh, not the least of which is what he did for us on the cross. Okay, that's his, the context of his attributes being lived out in daily life. But the question is, if God is infinite and unchanging, he's always been exactly the way he was and is and will be, then what was the context of all that before creation? Right? What did it mean for God to be a loving, compassionate, merciful God before he made anything? When God existed alone, uh, before there was a universe, before there was anything 
anywhere. What was the context of this? Um, and, and here's where uh, religions, for example, Judaism and, and Islam, that, that hold God as one only. They have a problem here because what did it mean for God to have any of these attributes as a lonely God who, who lived in total isolation? Right? What would it mean? And some would say, well, you know, he had love, he just didn't have the opportunity to use it. He had holiness, he just didn't have the opportunity to display it. He had kindness, just never an opportunity. And there is some truth in that. For example, God's forgiveness, God's grace, was only possible to display if there was sin. Right? But if all of his attributes, all of his attributes, could only exist if God created something to express them, is it really an attribute? Right? Could it really be part of his core being in nature if he had no context in which to live it out? Well, I would say no. And I think Jesus, the Bible would say no. That that's the meaning of the Trinity. God could not be love and compassion and mercy and all of those things and good and kind without some context for that relationship to exist. So God is a triune God. He's one being, uh, unchanging, infinite. But he exists in three distinct persons. Right? Uh, and it's not just three distinct random persons, you know, uh, a rabbi, a monk, and a priest, <laughs> or something like that. Um, it's, three, it's not like three friends. It's not three brothers. It's not three gods like Zeus and Poseidon and Athena, right? Uh, it is what? A father and a son, right? And Holy Spirit. And... Uh, Today we don't have time to go into the mystery of what the person of the Holy Spirit is in this relationship because I want to focus on the Father's Son. But think about this. Okay, just think about this. God for all eternity, in the very core of what he is as a being, as a triune God in relationship with himself, was a father and a son. Right? It is, it is inherent in the core of what he is. Right? To be... Father, and to be Son, right? Uh, if we if we miss this, we miss we miss we miss the point of the gospel, right? Uh, a lot of times we think, well, you know, God created the world; He created us; He created moms and dads and all that, and it's what He did. And then later, He thought, oh, you know, this whole family thing—this well, is kind of a cool object lesson. I think I'll explain myself in terms of this. <clears throat> no, right? We were created in God's image. God created us intentionally to display something of his character and who he is. And when he created parents and children, he created it to display himself, right? To show something of his own inherent core character and being. So, so to understand God's attributes, we've got to see them and understand them in the context of, of God as a being who is a father and a son for all he tried. Let's look um, at our adoption process. Okay, so what does it mean, given all that context? Sorry for all that background and context. But what does it mean then for us to be adopted as sons? What is is that? Well, Paul explains it uh, very simply this way. Verse 14, 14, he starts off, he says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Um, 
Now, some of you who are not of the male gender will maybe be thinking, well, that's kind of a ripoff. What about us? Well, uh, in this context, sonship is critical, okay? And, uh, and the reason is that in, in Paul's context, only the sons got right to property. Uh, it wasn't mean that they were necessarily loved more or valued more, that they didn't love their daughters, but the truth is only sons got inheritance, right? Uh, and so Paul's saying here, all of us as believers, men and women, we are adopted in the role of sons. In other words, full rights, full rights to everything. If he had said sons and daughters, that would have caused a lot of confusion in their day because they would have gone, well, that means the guys you know, got the good stuff and the girls got what was left over. Paul said, no, no, no. In this deal, everybody gets top rank, right? Uh, not only that, but the, the word sonship is important because we are being adopted as sons alongside and with Jesus, right? Uh, in this adoption... Uh, he says that we become joint heirs with Christ. So, so, so what we want to know is that everything that God shared in relationship with the Son from eternity past, everything, right? He brings us into that place of special reserve for His Son. Right? Doesn't matter if you're men, woman, male, female, young, old. We are adopted as sons. We are put in equal rank and position as sons with Jesus himself, right? So when, when God adopts us, he is wanting to bring us into the same kind of relationship with himself that God the Father has with God the Son, right? That's what he is giving to us in adoption. Um, secondly, uh, it is, it is a process done by the cross. Uh, and in the passage I read, it doesn't really explain that well, but we've got to see this passage in its greater context, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit mediates our adoption, but our adoption came about through the work of Christ. And let me just read, I'm going to condense verses 1 through 13. I took out all the extra sidetracks of Paul. And let me just capture for you briefly the first 13 verses of chapter 8. He says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law could not do. By sending his own son, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, right? What's the desire of a son? Please the father, right? But now, um, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If Christ is in you, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right? Uh, what Jesus did through his death, uh, through his sacrifices, gave us life. But not just life generically. Life as sons. Life as God's children. Right? So it comes to us fully through Christ. Uh, but, but Paul does go on to say that in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, in other words, in our adoption, accompanying it is the Holy Spirit. The spirit of adoption comes with that. But also it's the Holy Spirit that mediates it to us. Uh, he makes it a reality in our life. Right? He's the one who activates it, so to speak. So we become aware of what we have in Christ. God has filled us with the Holy Spirit so that uh, we possess him in the same way that Jesus did. So that relationship is now possible because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Uh, then he says, beyond that, he says in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So not only does the Holy Spirit mediate, but he confirms it. Right? How do you know you're a child of God? Well, he says the Holy Spirit bears witness to it. The Holy Spirit confirms it in us. Right? It would be really easy to think, you know, this is just wishful thinking on our part. You know, we just want to feel special about ourselves. We just want to sense that we're in the most privileged status and position in God's eyes. So we did this ourselves. We just made this up. Paul says, no, I'm not making this up. This is confirmed to us by the Holy Spirit who bears witness in our spirit that this is true. Right? Uh, there ought to be something deep inside us that just confirms, yeah, this is true. The Holy Spirit confirms that for us. And then finally, in verse 17, uh, this adoption comes with all, all the rights, privileges, and duties of sonship. He says, And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All right, so being a son has privileges. We share in his glory. We share in the full possession of God. Right? So everything God owns is yours. Now our adoption is past tense. Receiving the full inheritance is actually future tense. Right? So you get it, but just not yet. So don't go out and be spending a lot of money you know, thinking God's going to pay for it. Because okay, you don't get it yet. Right? Uh, you get some of it. But the full measure of the inheritance comes at the end. Right? Uh, not actually when God dies, but when we die. Kind of a unique twist on this one. Uh, but there are also duties. Right? If we suffer with Christ, right, uh, we will also share in his glory. Uh, we, we share in the ups and downs of the whole family business where God is persecuted, where the name of Christ is, is uh, attacked, right? We share, as family, the sufferings with Christ. So what does all this mean? Uh, let, me, let me just try to apply this in a couple of areas. Um, what we need to walk away with this morning, and what I hope we get from this, is that... Uh, what God did for us in, in justifying us, all that Paul has talked about in Romans, that God has made us right with himself, right? We are now in right relationship with God. So we can stand before God. Our sins have been washed away. We are cleansed, and we are right with him. And we now have the freedom of a relationship with God. We can come boldly into his presence, right? But the question remains, what is the nature of that relationship? Right? What kind of relationship do we have with God? Is he a king and we're his vassals? Is he a master and we're his subjects? 
Is he the boss and we're his laborers? Right? Uh, is he just a God and we're his dutiful worshipers? What is the core nature of our relationship with God? Well, Paul says here, what ought to characterize our relationship more than anything else is the relationship of a, of a parent and a child. Right? He is supremely, in terms of the nature of our relationship, he is father. And he is our father. That doesn't take away his dimensions as sovereign God or as king, as uh, ruler of the universe, as a God who is to be worshipped. It doesn't diminish any of that. But what he says is the, the, the channel of how I want to relate with you is first and foremost as a father to a child. As a father to a child. Right? So what that means is... Um, that we as his children move into the very context where the wealth of his infinite attributes have flourished for all eternity, right? We move into this space where God the Father and God the Son uh, live together for all eternity. And God brings us into the center of that space, right? The center of that space where he looks at us as his children, just like he looked at Jesus, where we look at him as a father who loves us uh, as a son, as a daughter, as a child. As we pursue relationship with God, that should be uh, the nature of our relationship. And it may mean that we need to do some work on what it means on this whole father thing, right? If we've got wrong ideas about what fatherness is because of our own upbringing, we need to sort that out. And we need to discover what kind of God he is as father. Uh, And let me just close with these three thoughts. As his children, and as we pursue relationship as his children, uh, it comes with rights, privileges, and duties. It comes with rights, right? Right? As his children, it means you have the right to full care, provision, and protection from God. Even in the human realm, as I said, to deny those things to your child would be neglect. How much more is God going to do that? To care for you, to provide for you, and to protect you. If we are his children, he's obligated as a father. It is his duty and responsibility to care for us in those ways. Right? So we can pursue those things from him. I love what Paul says here. He says, uh, we receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. When does a child cry out? Daddy. When does a child do that? When they're scared in the middle of the night. When they're hurt, they fall down. They come crying. They usually don't cry, Daddy. They usually cry, Mom, then. But they want the parent, right? They want a parent to come Nurture them, help them, right? Uh, Even as children get older, even as adults, they get into a difficult, they get into a hard spot, they need help, they need money. They call dad, dad, (laughs) I need money, right? Um, We have that right as children before the father to cry out, Abba, Father, I need your help. I need your protection. I need your care. Uh, and knowing that along with that comes the full uh, wealth of God. 
all his character, all his being. Right? There is nothing that God holds back from us. Nothing. Uh, he gives it all to us, all of himself to us. Second area, privileges. Um, there are rights, there are privileges. And one of the greatest privileges is the bond of love and affection. All right? God loves us as his children. And we ought to have with him primarily a relationship of deep-seated love and affection. And that ought to characterize our relationship with him. And if we're not experiencing that, right? if we're not saying, I just don't feel God's love and affection, I don't feel loving and affectionate towards God, then that means something in our relationship needs to be worked on and restored. Because that's why Jesus died. Jesus did not die just to make us good moral people who are clean, right? Who got washed up and fixed up. He died for us because he wanted to make us children of God who share that bond of love and affection with God the Father and God the Son. Uh, Another privilege, and this might sound a little odd, but another privilege is that we now have the privilege of living to please God, right? We now have the capacity and the ability to live to please God. In the whole setting of chapters 7 and 8, it's been all about the struggle with sin. Right? All of that gets erased in these two words, Abba, Father. Right? Abba, Father. If we really understand what it is to be rightly related to God as Father, we will want to live to please Him. Right? Now, now do children, children when I, I, I wanted to please my dad, I told you that, did I still do sinful things that my dad told me not to? Absolutely, right? Did I directly disobey him often? Often, yes. But you know, there was an amazing pain that came with that, right? Because I knew if he found out how disappointed he would be, right? See, the bond of love and affection produces in us a desire to reciprocate that with love and obedience and pleasing, Right? Uh, we shouldn't be under law anymore because we're now living in the house of our dad who loves us, who is our Abba Father, who we live to please and serve in obedience, not because we have to, not because we've got to be a good person to earn his love. Right? There's nothing Jesus could do to make God the Father love him more, Right? There's nothing we can do to make God the Father love us more. We don't obey so that he'll finally say, well, you finally got it right. It's about time, right? No. He's our Abba Father who loves us unconditionally. So we should long to please him. Lastly, the duties. Uh, We are to bear a family resemblance. We do not share his nature. We're adopted children, not not natural-born children, right? So we, we, we don't share his infinite attributes. But we ought to be daily being transformed to bear a family resemblance. We ought to speak more his language and live out his culture, right? Uh, we have the duty of giving honor and obedience. He is our father. He has right to rule over us as his sons and his children. We ought to give him our obedience because we want to please him. And finally, we do have an equal share in the family's troubles and triumphs. Uh, we have a great and glorious inheritance, but there's no guarantee that we're not going to suffer 
before we get it, right? Jesus died. Uh, he was crucified. He was tortured because he stood up and obeyed the Father. If we are his children, those who hate the Father will hate us. If we take a stand for what, what the Father says is true, we will be persecuted and we will suffer. Right? But we suffer as sons who bear the family name with pride, who say, yes, I am a child of God and I willingly suffer for the sake of my Father and my family's name. Right? Uh, but... He says, if we suffer with him, so shall we share in his glory. Right? In his glory. Um, Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much that you are truly and indeed our Father. And uh, all that that means for us. And uh, Lord, and honestly, it's... it's, uh, it's hard to grasp. It's hard to really imagine and picture how the God of the universe who's infinitely beyond us could adopt us and make us your children. And yet that's exactly what you've done. And it is indeed at the very core of your nature. You're a God who above all else is a God who exists as father and son in relationship. And it's just mind-boggling that you have brought us into that circle of relationship where we share alongside Jesus the incredible wealth of your glory and your being. Uh, Lord, help us to know, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, uh, what that means. And to experience, as Paul prayed, to experience uh, fully this love that's beyond knowing. But we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.